in the church today to become modern. Uh, many churches have done many different changes in regard to how we worship and the places that we worship to try to make the gospel appealing. In an age of entertainment, in a culture that likes to be wowed, we have a tendency to want to make that which we proclaim to the world more palatable, more accepting, uh, more readily available to them. But I ask you, can we ever make the gospel more acceptable to those who need to receive it? Or will they always be offended by the gospel? Can we make the gospel more likable, or will there always will be someone who will object to it? Is it possible for you and I to make it so cool and so hip that everyone will want it? And many churches have gone to many links in trying to make the gospel exactly that, but I, I, I contend with those and contend with those in this auditorium that would agree with that, that there is no way in the world that you can make the gospel so hip, so cool, so palatable, so likable that they will run to it simply because of the way we present it. Because Jesus says himself in Luke 15, 31, do you think that I bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, I bring division. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings division. It brings conflict. It brings tension into our culture. And because of that, once it is proclaimed and once it is heard, no one, and I say this, no one will ever be able to remain neutral in that which they have heard. There is no way to become neutral. There is no neutrality when it comes to hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It demands something from us. It requires movement once we hear it. We either move toward him or we move away from him, but it will require movement on our part. And whenever it is proclaimed and whenever it is shared, there will always be some sort of movement. Now, the beauty about this message is that that movement is not dependent upon that or those who proclaim it. That's the beauty of it. Uh, it is dependent upon God, who God alone is the one who draws and who saves. And even though God is the one who draws and saves, I'm convinced there are many who will hear, who will listen to the message, who will understand what it is calling for them to do and will turn their backs from it and will reject it outright. Because God often will do his part in calling forth those whom he wants to save. And yet there are those who will reject outright, even with understanding that which they have heard, simply because it's just not something that appeals to them. 
are desirous to possess. Now, where do you get that? And I know there's a tension by some who in our congregation, in our fellowship, because we do have some who are Reformed and some who are bent towards Reformed theology, and most Baptists are somewhat bent toward the Reformation theology where God is sovereign sitting on the throne and whom he calls they will receive, and, and, and I understand all of that. And yet there is in this tension of the gospel, in the sovereignty of God, there is a responsibility upon the hearer to respond favorably to the message, for God does not make us, nor did he design for us to be puppets on a string who simply respond without will to his will. Now, I'm not saying that our will supersedes God's will, but I am saying that there is an aspect of our will in which we then have a responsibility to will what God wills, and we must then respond favorably to the call that God extends to us. And when we reject that message, we then become responsible for that rejection. And in this incredible text in Romans chapter 10, beginning with verse 16, we see there are four demands to the gospel. Number one, the first demand of the gospel is a response. As I mentioned earlier, the gospel will always generate some sort of movement, either toward or away from the gospel. And here we see in this beautiful text, in verse 16, that God has called Israel. And yet, in spite of God's call unto Israel, they have rejected the gospel message of Jesus and have failed to repent of their self-righteousness. And because of that, they stand responsible for that decision and are now guilty before a holy and a righteous God. Look at verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Notice that first word, B-U-T. However, it's interesting that with each of the four points, there is that that, that little three-letter word that, that sort of distinguishes exactly what, I'm, what I have concluded to be the, the, the demands of the gospel. Because if you know earlier, if you were here last week, we studied what the gospel had for us. We, we learned earlier in the text, or the writing of the Apostle Paul inspired the Holy Spirit. He says, how will the gospel get out? How will people believe in the gospel? If it is the power of God unto salvation, how does that power go forth? Well, it says that God calls preachers. And I'm not just talking about preachers. Some of you like to call me preacher, and it's kind of funny that, that you, write out, you write down preacher when you send me a, a nice notes or you send me things in, you know, cards, and, and it's kind of cool. Uh, you know, that's, that's the old-fashioned preacher thing, and, and it's kind of cool. But, you know, we're all preachers of the gospel. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're a preacher. Now, you're not ordained as a preacher, but yet you are ordained as a preacher, For it is God who calls us to preach, to proclaim, to share the good news. And God has called us to do that. And because God has called us to do that, we then proclaim it. And then he says, once it's proclaimed by someone who he has called, the end result, then they must then give a response to that which they have heard and that which they understand. And once they hear and understand that which has been proclaimed or declared, that wonderful good news, they then must make a response. And it says that whoever, or it says everyone that believes will be saved. The gospel is intended for everyone. 
And the gospel is intended that everyone hear it, but not everyone that hears it is going to be saved. That's just a fact. But they, meaning the Israelites, those to whom the apostle Paul has in his heart, he is burdened, beginning in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, he is burdened for his countrymen, his fellow Jews, because they have not received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And they, these Jews, have not all obeyed the gospel. We're going to, we don't have time to look at it, but in Romans 11, you read verse 1 and verse 2, not all of them have rejected, but not all of them have been saved. The apostle Paul himself was a Jew. He was an Israelite who had received the gospel. And there were others who also had received the gospel, but there are some, if not many, who have not obeyed the gospel. What does it mean to obey the gospel? Within the gospel call, there is a command, if not a demand, to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior of their lives. And not to answer to that call is literally being disobedient to the call of Christ unto salvation. So not all of the Israelites, upon hearing the message that Jesus proclaimed and the ministry that he performed, indicating of who he was and drawing upon his deity or his divinity, helping them see that he was the Messiah, the promised Son of God, who came to redeem lost humanity from their sin against God, they did not all believe in him, in spite of what they saw, in spite of what they heard. But they not have all obeyed the gospel. They were being disobedient. And then he tucks in this little beautiful passage in Isaiah 53, uh, 53, 53.1. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what what he has heard from us? He's saying, you have heard the message from Christ himself. You have witnessed the message of Christ in his works. You have heard the message of the gospel of Jesus proclaimed from his apostles and those who are his witnesses. You have heard the gospel, and yet your response is that you did not make him Lord. It's interesting that he quotes from an Old Testament passage, but he he quotes it in Greek, and the word Lord there is the word for master. It is the Lord for CEO. It is the word for ruler. For you see, they they heard the message, but they would not turn from their self-righteousness and turn to Christ and make him the Lord of their lives. And then he reminds them as he reminds us, and there's a lot of wonderful truths tucked in this text, but just for our record today and just for our study today, the little nugget I think that that we can conclude here, and there are many, many truths in this one passage, he's reminding them, you know, faith comes from hearing. You've heard, and you should have put your faith in Christ because you've heard the word of Christ. You've heard the gospel. And their response has been anything but to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord. Not everyone who hears the wonderful, glorious gospel message of Jesus will respond favorably. And these Israelites certainly did not. But the gospel always demands some sort of movement and some sort of response for him or against him. There is no neutrality. Secondly, the gospel demands then a responsibility. For once I have received this wonderful, glorious good news of the saving work of Jesus Christ, and I reject him, I am responsible for having made that decision, not God. Once I hear the message, and I reject that message, 
I alone am responsible for my decision, it's no longer God's problem. I cannot blame God. Notice what he says in verse 18. But, there it is again, that word, it is a contradiction here. It's as if someone were saying, but wait a minute, is that fair, God? Have you ever, been, ever, ever had anybody ask you that question, God? Is that fair? Is that really fair? Is it for a loving God to send anybody to an eternal hell? Is that really God? Is that really fair? And, and, and I've said this before, and you've heard it. God doesn't send people there. People send themselves there because of their refusal to receive Christ as their Savior and to make him Lord of their lives. And once they've made that decision, it's no longer God's responsibility to save them when they've rejected him. This is their responsibility. But I ask, and then he asks this rhetorical question, I ask, have they not heard? Is it fair? And he says, well, have they not heard? Haven't they heard the message? And notice he answers his own question. Indeed they have. Have they not heard? Indeed they have. They have heard the glorious, wonderful good news. That indeed they have is one word in the original text. It means it is emphatic. It is certain. And it expresses this, expressing this intensity that God says, absolutely they have heard. There is no question that they have not heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ. For, notice he says in Psalms 19.4, he then says, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. It's interesting that he quotes from this Old, Test this Old Testament passage from the, the, the writing of Psalms 19.4, where it talks about the existence of God. But he, he puts a little twist on it here when he uses that Old Testament passage some, somewhat as an application or an illustration to the point that he's trying to make. He says the word voice. Well, does creation have a voice? Yes and no. Now, you remember our study in Romans chapter 1, where he's describing the Gentiles and their disbelief and their rejection of Jesus? And he says, you, you are without excuse because even the, the, the earth and the sea and the, the, the mountains, they cry out that there's a God and that God exists, and that alone should draw you to God and, and point you to Christ, just the creation itself. And, and then he, he uses that here, but he says, the voice has gone out to all the earth. And he's, he's describing, I believe, a voice in which he is saying to, to his fellow countrymen, these are Israelites, these are Jews, who, like the Gentiles, they have heard the voice but the Gentiles have heard just not the voice of creation, but they have heard the literal voice of Jesus himself cry out to them with words of the gospel message. And these words have not, he's not talking literally gone all over the world, but gone all over the known world of their day and time because wasn't the apostle Paul the one who was taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the known world in that day and time. So the gospel is going out. And the gospel has gone out with the Jews as well, which we, if we have time, we'll look at it as well. But, but you remember, they took with them the Old Testament and the gospel also, the contents of the gospel are, are defined and explained in the Old Testament as well. And some of you who are in your study right now on Sunday morning, a certain study, it sort of helps reflect then where the gospel is found in the Old Testament. I was at a funeral this week and the pastor 
made a comment that, that really disturbed me. Um, it, it was not biblically or theologically accurate. He said that uh, in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, he created man and woman and put Adam and Eve in the garden and uh, you know, man was tempted and they sinned and therefore we need a savior because of our sin and God instituted then the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. And then through that sacrificial system, man was supposed to be saved. But then God realized, like God had an oops moment, then God realized that that sacrificial system wasn't enough. And so he sent Jesus. That's theologically inaccurate. The old sacrificial system was enough. Jesus came to fulfill and to become the ultimate sacrifice. And as that ultimate sacrifice, it was the Israelites, the Jews, who had been given that sacrificial system to then turn from that sacrificial system to turn to Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of that sacrificial system so that by their faith, trust, and belief in him, his death on the cross and him being raised from the dead would then meet the sufficiency of the demand of God and then through faith in him, they can be saved. And yet they rejected him. And because of their rejection, they are responsible. You see, the responsibility, once the message is proclaimed and heard and received, becomes ours, not God's. And the gospel always demands that we give an account of our responsibility for how we respond to what we have heard in that message. Demand number three is recognition. You see, in order for us to respond to the gospel, there needs to be an understanding in regard to the truths of the whole gospel and to understand what it says. Here again in verse 19, he uses the word B-U-T, but. And therefore, you get almost this, this idea that, that they are about to give a, a defense. Uh, they, have, they have received the message, they have heard the message, they have rejected the message, now they're responsible for that rejection, but, but, but wait a minute, let, let, me, let me give you a defense. Let's go to a court of law and let me lay out some sort of defense on my side that, that won't hold me responsible and accountable for what I heard, because who of us have not, not heard what was being spoken? Anybody here ever done that? Any couples in communicating with one another? While the spouse is communicating, you did not hear all that they said or any of what they said. And so just in case they weren't listening and they didn't hear, let me give you a defense. I was there, I was present, I heard, but I didn't really understand. But notice it said, but I ask, again, a rhetorical question, did Israel not understand not only was it spoken and communicated to them, not only did they hear the message, but notice, notice the next step. They understood the message that Jesus was the Messiah, and the miracles that he performed then fulfilled Scripture, revealing that he was the promised Messiah and that his message must then be received. And they understood the message of Jesus. They understood it. That word understand means to get the meaning of. They understood the meaning behind the message. They understood exactly what was being communicated, exactly what was at stake if they rejected and refused the message. And here we have, they believed, but they didn't believe. Because if you remember, there are two aspects about belief we saw last week. 
The demons believe, but they're not saved. The demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The demons believe that Jesus died on the cross. The demons believe that he rose from the dead. The demons believe that he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. But are they saved? Absolutely not. Why? Because there's a difference between belief and belief. They have not turned from their sin and trusted Jesus as their Savior and made him the Lord of their lives. And here we see, but I ask, did Israel not understand? Where, where did they get their understanding? From two places. First, he says, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Deuteronomy 32.21 is the song of Moses. And basically in this text, we see in Deuteronomy 32, where Moses is singing his song, that God is about to use the Gentiles, those who have no understanding of God, who will come then to understand that they are they, they are being used by the will of God to be used to discipline Israel for their disobedience. Here, these Gentiles who do not know God will understand the will of God in that they are the instruments and the tools that God is going to use to discipline Israel. And the message that he's trying to communicate in this is you are missing out on the gospel and its beauty for your life. You're missing it. You're missing it. All along in Romans chapter 10 and, and previous chapters to this, he says God has sent the message not only for you, Gent for you Jews, but also for the Gentiles. But you have rejected and refused to receive Jesus, so now the Gentiles are receiving the message. It's going out beyond the, the borders of Israel and across the world, and Gentiles on, in large proportions are, are, who, who had no spiritual understanding at all and who never sought God, God is seeking them. They are discovering the reality of the gospel, and they are turning to faith in Jesus. You guys are missing it. Notice verse 20. Isaiah 56, 1, he then uses another old ancient scripture. Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. He's answering Isaiah's prayer. It's interesting that, uh, that a lot of times we evangelicals love certain portions of Isaiah chapter 6, and we, we really like to use some very prominent verses there to help us understand Jesus and what he did. But did you know that Isaiah, when God gave him the message and sent him to Israel, that they not only rejected him as the messenger, they rejected him and his message. They rejected the messenger and the message. God actually told Isaiah as he was calling him to go and proclaim this beautiful message of salvation to God's people. Hey, dude, they're not only going to reject you, they're not going to receive your message. And you're going to have a ministry that is not going to be defined successful. Who of us wants to be called by God to, to share a message with people who will not only receive us as the messengers, but will completely reject our message? And again, for an argument's sake, to use this Old Testament passage, he's saying Jesus came just like Isaiah, and you rejected him like you did Isaiah. Not only the messenger, but his message. Why did he do that? The passage says to make them jealous to awaken their spirit to the reality of what they were doing. They understood what they did. 
And yet, in spite of understanding what they did, they did it anyway. There will be many, there will be many who will understand the gospel truth and yet will fall short in making Jesus the Lord of their lives and placing their faith and trust in him. The gospel demand number four, responsibility. It's interesting in this text that he concludes chapter 10 with these beautiful words about how Israel, who was invited to faith in Jesus, just outright refused his help. I mean, it's like somebody knocking on your door and, say, and saying, you just won the, a sweepstakes. I'm, I can't think off the top of my head what that one is, the, the, the publisher's clearinghouse. Some of you are expecting to win that, I can tell. You have just won $5 million. Okay? You think that'd help you? But instead of receiving the check, you close the door and say, no, thank you. Would you do that? I hope first you would take the money and tie 10% on it and then return the rest, okay? So if that ever happens to you, no, on a gift like that, I think it's 25%. I'm just kidding. So... (laughs) I mean, when you think about it, he says again that word, however, but of Israel, he, God, says, all day long I have held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. I want to invite you to come back next Sunday because we're going to look at this one verse and that one little phrase, all day long I have held out my hands. We're going to just camp out there next week. I'm excited about it. But notice that he's holding out his hand. He's extending this incredible salvation, and they are rejecting it. Why? They are not receptive to the message. Have you ever shared the gospel of Jesus to someone, and, 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 and you were excited about it, and you shared it with them, and you walked away going, well, that didn't go too good. You ever done that? Ever felt like you were a failure? Maybe, maybe you should have studied more for the test, or maybe it was something wrong with your presentation or something like that. You, you know, the fault is not yours, and you're not responsible really even for the delivery or whether they receive it or not. Because you see, we are dealing with a hostile uh, audience, really. And because they're disobedient and they are contrary, they reject the offer of salvation. That word disobedience means to refuse to go along. It means to refuse to follow. And in Romans 16, it said they did not obey the gospel. Why? They were disobedient. And because of their disobedience and because of their depravity, and here, Israel, because of their self-righteousness, and in spite of their self-righteousness, they were sinners in need of salvation. They chose to reject the call of God to turn to him for salvation, and they became disobedient. You know, people don't want to come to faith in Jesus and live out a gospel life because they like their disobedience. I'm going to tell you something. You ready for this? You ready? It's fun to sin. It's fun to sin. So they think so. That's the lie that has been propagated that they have accepted. Not recognizing and realizing that giving up that sin, there's more joy 
in Christ than there is in sin. But there's a disguise, there's a deception in which people often, as they hear the gospel call of Christ, they know that they are being called to a transformational life, and out of their disobedience, they say no. But not only disobedience, the word contrary is used. It's an interesting word, isn't it? It means to to be antagonistic. It means to antagonize heavily. It means to the point of complete opposition. It means that when we project or present the gospel, these people are not only disobedient, but they will press against it. They will fight against it. They will attack you if they don't receive it. They won't like it. And they will not only say no, but they will come diametrically opposite to you, and they may even turn on you and attack you for the gospel that you're presenting. And they won't receive it. The gospel demands receptivity, and if it's not received, then those who reject it are responsible for that rejection and are responsible for the end result of that rejection. Now, I want, you, I want to close with this last verse. I want you to, uh, I want you to turn to uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And I, you just follow along there. I'm, I'm not going to read it because it's, we just really don't have time. But in Luke chapter 15, verse 11, turn there. I want you to see what the, the storyline is. If you were in the men's breakfast yesterday, uh, you know what I'm talking about. If you were not, man, you missed a meal. Holy cow. Uh, if you're, guys, if you don't want your wife to know that you eat that kind of stuff, this is a place to come. And, and I have learned on, on men's breakfast to use a spoon with my meal because then you get all the wonderful gravy along with the other stuff. That, that wonderful gravy, Bob, I just, man. Can we do this again next Saturday? You can? We talked about last, uh, last Saturday, yesterday morning in the men's breakfast about the, the story of the prodigal son. And it's interesting how the, the story of the prodigal son sort of comes to play here. And, and uh, as I was studying this week, uh, several of the, the commentators pointed to the prodigal story and, and the prodigal son story. And, and I'd never really seen it in this light before, but, but, but I think it runs parallel the teaching of Jesus with what the Apostle Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 10. Yeah, now, you know the story of the Apostle Paul is telling is the same as that of Jesus. And, and virtually what he is saying is what, what Jesus said. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger son came to his dad and said, Hey, Dad, I want my inheritance. Now, if you read the story closely, you'll see that, that the son did not tell the dad what he was going to do with the inheritance. Because I, I, I wonder if had the father known in advance what the son was going to do with the inheritance, he may not have given it to him, but it was his anyway. And, and he decided, okay, I'll, I'll give it to my son. He's represented myself and, and himself well, and he's done well in working for the, the, the family business, and, 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 and God has blessed us, and so maybe, maybe I'll give it to him now. And so he divided the land, and he gave his son his share of the inheritance, and several days later, the son sells that inheritance, takes the money, goes to a distant land, and the Bible says that that prodigal son wasted every penny of that inheritance on wicked, vile, sinful living. 
About that time when his money ran out, there was a famine in the land. And there were, there were, there were no jobs available. Obviously, he had wasted all of his money, and you got a lot of money when you have a lot of, when you, I'm sorry, you got a lot of friends when you have a lot of money. And because his money ran out, he ran out of friends, and the only job he could get now was, the Bible says he was out in the, the field of pigs. I didn't realize pigs needed a field, but there must have been many of them. And his responsibility was to feed these pigs. Now, I don't know how many of us have lived on a farm, but you don't feed pigs anything but slop, right? Where's probably where we get the, the food, sloppy joes. I don't know. But anyway, you're getting hungry, aren't you? And while he was feeding the pigs, he began to look at what he was feeding, and the Bible says he began to hunger for what he was giving to them. And then he suddenly dawned on him. And this is what he said. He said to himself as he came to his senses, My father has hired servants who are treated better than this. I'll decide to go home. And when I go home, I'll say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your servants. He got up and went home. And while he was at a distance, his father, who had been waiting for him to return all this time, saw him at a distance and ran toward him. And he said those exact words to his dad. And his dad embraced him, brought him into the house, killed the fatted calf, and they had an incredible celebration, a wonderful party. What does that have to do with this text? Israel was like the prodigal son. They had left their father. Israel had left their father. The only difference between the prodigal son and Israel is that Israel did not know they had left their father. They had left their father and Israel needed to return. Secondly, the prodigal son squandered his inheritance and Israel also, like the prodigal son, squandering their inheritance. God sought them out in the very beginning through Abraham and called them his people and called them by name, and he was their friend and their God, and yet they had abandoned their father, and because of that, now when Jesus had arrived, they rejected him, the gospel was going forth to the Gentiles, and they were in danger of losing their inheritance as the chosen people of God. The prodigal son needed to repent and return home. And Jesus and the Apostle Paul are saying the same thing. Israel, you must repent and return home. For unless you repent and get up from your, your sinful life and return back to the Father, you cannot and will not be saved. Now Israel, unlike the prodigal son, was not aware of their sin. You see, they thought they were self-righteous. They didn't believe themselves to be sinners in need of a Savior. They were people who were sick, who refused to go to the physician for medication for their disease so they could be healed. And they were on the verge of losing their lives. And lastly, the prodigal gave his inheritance to strangers, and Israel also was giving their inheritance to those who were strangers, to those who sought not God and knew not God, were then finding out God was pursuing them and they were placing their faith and trust in Jesus and being adopted into the family. The gospel demands four things. It demands, first of all, a response from us. And once we render that response, we then become responsible 
for that response. And that response is based upon an understanding, a recognition that Jesus Christ is who he says that he claimed to be. And we must be receptive to that message and to the Messiah called Jesus. For when we are, everyone who places their faith and trust in him will be saved. So the question is, what is my response to this gospel? What is your response today? What have you understood God speaking into your life? What is he calling you to do in the form of a response? Some of us here today understand, as one young man did last week, you'll get to meet him later on, realize that he had Jesus in his head, but not in his heart. And I'm convinced there are many today who are like that. For Israel had understanding, but they didn't believe in Jesus unto salvation, much like the demons. For we must not just understand, but then have a heart transformation where belief affects our heart, where we place our faith and trust in him as our Savior and our Lord. I wonder if there are any of us here today who have already made that decision, but yet like the prodigal, we are wasting our inheritance. We're forfeiting that which Christ gave us through his death and his resurrection and not living the life of a son, but a slave to sin. Oh, it may not be in ways that are visible, but it could be in the heart, it could be in the mind. It could be in small, unseen ways to the human eye, but seen by the all-seeing eye of God. So what is the response that we must give? And keep in mind, keep in mind, we are responsible for what we understand today to be the will of God. And if we don't respond, yes, Lord, we have become guilty of disobedience and responsible then for the consequence. Let's pray. song inside my heart.